Medic 43, District 1, Engine 51, Response, Cardiac Arrest. Hello everyone, welcome again to another edition of the MCHD Paramedic Podcast. This is Dr. Casey Patrick, and joining me today is my medical director, Rob Dixon. Good afternoon, Casey. And one of our superstar in-charge paramedics here at MCHD, Lily Trosclair. Hello. And today we are going to bring on our case of the quarter for Q4 2021. And this really is a timely case based on all of the respiratory illnesses that we're seeing right now out in the community. Obviously, COVID-19 is is huge, but this is also the time of year for obstructive lung disease, both asthma and RSV in our youngsters and COPD in our old folks. So without giving away too many of the details, Lily, tell the listeners about your case, how the call came out, and what you found on scene. Yeah, absolutely. So it came in as a 901 cardiac arrest for a pediatric patient. And when we read the notes, it indicated that the patient had an asthmatic history, then updated that CPR was being given by the call taker slash family. So when we did arrive on scene, what we found was a young child, um, unconscious, unresponsive, uh, pale, a little cyanotic around the lips, um, actively being given CPR by the family. As we roll back to the pediatric general assessment triangle, and we're in bad shape. Yeah, we're really bad shape. All three sides there, correct? Right, absolutely. So tell us a little bit, even before we get into kind of the nitty-gritty of how you started your management of this case, Lily, tell us about the stress of that. That's the most stressful call that can come out. How do you pregame for that call? How do you prepare and prepare your crew? Uh, well, we have this nifty tool that's accessible to us called the Hand Heavy app that we can open up and select the age for a particular patient, review the meds on the way to the call. In addition to that, we can also kind of run by our partner, run by each other, possible differentials of what's going on with this patient, what what uh, should we anticipate needing to do right, of the, right away, and um, that way we're prepared when we arrive on scene. So you, you know it's asthma, or you know there's a background of asthma, and you know there's a cardiac arrest. So start there. You're walking in on scene after your initial assessment, and then we can kind of go into that initial assessment and what history you glean from the, the family there. Absolutely. So patient's apneic, we want to get on top of airway. Uh, we want to assess for a pulse with CPR. That way we have we're able to find it and then see CPR to see if there is a pulse without compressions. What we did find is that the patient had a really strong pulse, um, so we no longer had to continue those compressions. Uh, upon um, gathering some of the patient's history, uh, we know that the patient has asthma, that she is typically monitored at home with at-home treatments, but this time it didn't work and the, fa- the patient was found um, uh, collapsed in the living room when she was last checked on. So she had been sick for a couple of days is a history you got before uh, she had her collapse. Had she, did she have any risk factors for severe asthma? Had she been hospitalized before? Had she been in ICU or intubated before? Absolutely. So that is one of the primary questions that we did ask. Has she ever been intubated before? And to be perfectly honest, I was expecting a no answer, as is typical for any young child doesn't they don't typically have significant medical history but uh the family did say that uh she did have a history of uh severe history of asthma and was intubated two years prior for a very similar situation 
that's of course at the top of your differential, right? Is asthma with or uh, cardiorespiratory arrest. What else were you thinking about on the way there? What else in your differential for a pediatric cardiac arrest of this this nature? Uh, it could be something else, um, respiratory nature, uh, such as pneumonia. Maybe she had a, a spontaneous pneumo. Uh, maybe she has some underlying um, medical issues, such as congestive heart failure. Um, like congenital issues even, recent viral infections that led to maybe heart failure. I mean, there's there's endless uh, possibilities. Yeah, so you got a pretty big differential, and, and we're given something. We're given asthma. Tell me about the process. So you're there. You find a spontaneous pulse, and you, tell me a little bit about how you start out setting up your safety net of managing that patient and how you did a focused clinical examination to kind of get down to where asthma, that's likely the, the problem and the killer here. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, when it comes down to urgent patients, really, it kind of comes down to what you learn in school. If you can manage ABCs, you give yourself time to figure out what else is going on. So we're managing airway uh, by ventilating the patient. Uh, we're, she's so that also takes care of breathing as well. And then circulation, she has spontaneous circulation. So um, in that case, we don't really have to intervene in that aspect. Um, so then we focus on um, a more focused exam at, at, like, while other things are being implemented, such as IOs, oxygen, um, supplemental oxygen. Um, we'll go for lung sounds. So uh, when assessing the lung sounds, um, basically we heard very minimal air movement, but it w but you did hear movement in both sides of the lungs, kind of rolling out that that pneumo. Um, but uh, what you could hear was some pretty faint wheezing with the, the amount of air that you were able to hear. Right, kind of a silent chest, and we've used that yeah. term on the podcast before, where the patient is so distressed and they have uh, really two of the components of obstructive lung disease and asthma, right? You have a reactive component, so you have severe bronchoconstriction, so the conducting airways are constricted, and you have hyperinflammation, uh, inflammatory changes, plus minus even mucus plugging in these patients, so it makes it kind of the double whammy. Tell me about how you started your therapy to target that. So pretty quickly, you were like, well, it may be infectious, there may be pneumonia, but this really on the clinical exam, the history looks like an asthma-related arrest. Now you've got ROSC. How are you attacking the asthma, those two problems, the bronchoconstriction and all the inflammatory changes? So immediately pulled out the epi, the I am epi, drew it up, and then uh, gave her I am epi because uh, she needed that immediately to open up her lungs um, and get some get some air in there, um, get that those uh, gases exchanging. Right. So I am epinephrine. What else did you guys do? What else was on your, your therapeutic armamentarium for this patient? Yeah, so uh, we were going going to attempt to establish an airway, but due to uh, her clenched jaw, that wasn't um, something that we could do immediately. Um, since her oxygenation was good with supplemental and assisted inhalations, we went ahead and, of course, established that IO and uh, prioritized fluids, um, steroids, which eventually um, her treatment advanced to uh, definitive airway, inline nebs, and then mag sulfate. Okay, so all the, really all the components, inline nebs to, to treat the bronchospasm and try to reverse the bronchospasm so the patient can ventilate, magnesium for the bronchospasm as well, and then steroids more in the, in the longer term for the inflammatory changes. So when you're managing this patient, we won't get deep, deep, but, you know, we can kind of pivot back to this 
this terrible triad of pediatric cardiac arrest. And, and when we were doing this one, I know we had talked as a group that when you think about your patients out there, this really uh, fits almost all of our respiratory patients, whether they're obstructive in uh, nature, like this patient, or it's just a pneumonia patient that's a, an oxygenation problem. They have three main components that really help lead to uh, this, this terrible triad that leads them to their, ultimately to their respiratory failure and their cardiac arrest, don't yes. they? They have severe respiratory fatigue. This child has been struggling for several days. They have a respiratory acidosis, whether it be hypercarbic or from an obstructive or from hypoxemia. Check that most of our patients that, you know, have a respiratory arrest have that. And then they have the, uh, Increase intrathoracic pressure. Thank you very yeah. much. See, look at that. Boom. That's why we brought Boom. the star on board to help out the uh, old medical director because I forgot the other side that I wanted to talk about, which is now we're giving positive pressure ventilation, which we were always taught, hey, try to avoid positive pressure, whether that's a bag valve mask or non-invasive or a tracheal tube. Why are we avoiding this? We're avoiding it because it increases the intrathoracic pressure and can decrease the preload. So to put those three things together that can lead or contribute potentially to either a pediatric or an adult cardiac arrest. And when we were talking about it, I thought back to lots of patients that we intubate adult patients for all kinds of respiratory failure. They have all three of these, but what do they have in common? What What's the one drug that all of our in-charges usually mix up before they do a DSI in this service. Fresh dust presser? Right, because they all drop their pressure, and it's kind of an aha moment to me. Of course they do. Of course they do. They have respiratory fatigue. They're acidotic. Now we paralyze them, and we tank their preload. Of course they're at risk to have bad things happen. Their blood pressure drops up. This is really a learning moment for me, Casey. Well, I've, I've got to interject a couple questions because you guys have been rolling and I've been sitting here thinking, so you know I'm going to have questions. What other piece of the puzzle, Lily, and I'll get back to uh, push dose pressers because i got one I want to get in before that. What other piece of the puzzle did you have on your monitor that gave you the diagnosis? Entitled. Entitled. Yeah. So yeah. elevated entitled in this situation. And it was pretty high for her. How high? It high? was like in the 90s. In the yeah. 90s. So if it's a pneumonia, mm -hmm. you're going to be acidotic, septic, ank. If it's uh, viral myocarditis, probably not going to be hypercarbic. The only other condition you'd be worried about with hypercarbia would be potential ingestion and overdose, which always should be on our list for kids as they can get into mom and dad's, uh, you know, party, party favors and end up with ingestions and overdoses. But this one, you know, really had all the characteristics of an asthma exacerbation. As far as push dose goes and anticipating hypotension with sedatives. Um, and for the listeners out there in, in, in our service here at MCHD, we do not use paralytics in pediatric patients. Longer discussion, probably an entire podcast series there. At least one. But just <laughs> for the non-MCHD listeners, we're, we're not paralyzing these folks. So we're only inducing them and sedating them, mm -hmm. which I would interject and add that you know ketamine with some bronchodilatory effects was absolutely a, an aid in this total package of medications that we gave but when you look at sedated intubated patients paralyzed in the emergency department icu anesthesia settings almost a quarter of those patients drop their pressure after intubation even when they're normal tensive before 
So, and we'll put the, one of my favorite slides in our airway lecture. And so if we know going in that a quarter of these folks drop their pressure, well, if you add in the terrible triad of all the acidosis and increased intrathoracic pressure and all the other badness that goes along with an acute asthma exacerbation, we got to be primed and ready for a hypotensive patient really, really quickly. And from that standpoint, with push dose presser, we're talking about a 100 cc bag of saline and a milligram of epinephrine. We mix that up. We have it ready to go. You dry out 10 cc's. There's 10 mic per mil concentration. And if we don't use it, that's pennies. But if we're prepared and we're proactive instead of being reactive, then we can react to that blood pressure of 80 or 70, that map of 50, whatever it may be, because we know that some of these are going to drop, especially when they're hemodynamically deranged. It's like the saying goes, better to have it, not need it, than need it, not have it. Right, and, and yeah. you guys were already starting to work on the pressure, right? You hung fluid, you mm -hmm. assessed the lung sounds, and you anticipated this kind of problem coming up. So you already were giving IV fluids and giving preload to this patient already. And we've talked about that before. End-stage asthma is absolutely 100% obstructive shock. So from a preload augmentation standpoint, fluids in these patients are key. They've been short of breath for two days, three days, four days, probably not good fluid intake. They're tachypnic, so their insensible losses go up. So as far as they're already probably volume depleted and you're getting ready to positive pressure ventilate them, they definitely need blood pressure augmentation and preload augmentation. And while you assessed for pneumothorax to make sure there wasn't a pneumothorax contributing, we can still increase preload with just pure, pure fl fluid bolus. So. so when we talk about some of the complications around specifically these asthmatic patients and obstructive disease, can you talk a little bit about their risk for pneumothoraces, spontaneous pneumothoraces, pneumothoraces after they get a positive pressure ventilation, and this concept of breast stacking? I want to kind of get to breast stacking. I know we ultimately intubated this patient, uh, which we were trying to avoid, but this is a very unstable patient, had already cardiac arrest, so I think it was the right call. So we get the patient sedated, intubated. Talk a little bit about those two complications. First off, from breath stacking standpoint, Lily, I'll, I'll lead you a little bit. How would you recognize it pre-intubation, and how would you recognize it post-intubation? So if you're bagging the patient and you have a, a, a barotrauma-related pneumothorax, how would you notice? How would you tell your attendant to notice, even your fire department partners? How would you tell them to notice? How would you feel it? Uh, they would become difficult to bag. Um, you also have your entitled monitoring to help uh, guide you and uh, help you identify with that. Um, you'll have kind of like, like you said, the breath stacking, the, the entitled kind of like, it won't come back to baseline, it'll just keep. Stair step, right, stair step pattern. We'll stair step up, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you're giving 100 cc's. I'm just making up a number with with every breath, but you're only getting 80 cc's of that back. So every every ventilation you give, the patient's got extra air in the thoracic cavity. How would you how would you treat that? So you you assess the patient. The you 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 were patting ourselves on the back because patient's now intubated. We've saved the day. We're getting packaged up, ready to go to the hospital. And then all of a sudden, your attendant's losing their mind because the, the, the ventilator is alarming with the high-pressure alarm. Uh, you assess the tube, make sure it's in the right place. You listen to breast sounds. You don't think there's a pneumonia. You think, aha, this is an asthma patient. I'm going to give lots of bronchodilators, but must be breast stacking. What's one way that you can try to treat and temporize that? Uh, you can increase the inspiratory to expiratory time. That way, um, 
they have a longer time to breathe out the air. Um, you can switch from the ventilator to a BVM and again, give them more time to exhale that air. Right. So that's directly related to rate. So at MCHD, uh, you've heard the vent. Uh, you can go back to the vent one, but you're like the superstar. Look at that. You were like teaching me here about the terrible triad. I'm a simple person. If, if I want more time for the patient to exhale, I just lower the rate, right? That's why our, our rate here is 20 in everyone in normally with normal physiology, 10 in COPD or asthma, some obstructive uh, physiology, right? We want more time in a ventilator cycle for that expiratory. The other thing that you can do is just simply try to physically get rid of the air. And we've had a couple of yeah, really good I'm saves. Doing the, I'm doing the bear hugger. A bear there. hugger. So like He's giving you a bear, bear hugger. Yeah. 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 Yeah, yeah. So you can unhook the vent circuit. And we've had a couple of cases here mm -hmm. where the patient cardiac arrested, we intubate them. They have this phenomenon of breast stacking. Patient cardiac arrested, they unhook the vent circuit, gay fluids, decrease the, the thoracic uh, AP diameter just really by bear hugging the patient. You could hear when, when it's positive and they've got all this trapped air in their lungs, I mean, you will hear it coming out the tracheal tube. And that particular patient got raw. So it, it does work. I always think about that kind of in our, our dopes differential. Uh, for, for this type of patient, always consider breast stacking. And it makes sense go, when you go back to the triad yeah. when it, like it, part of it's in, increase in thoracic pressure. So if you relieve some of the pressure, you're less likely to put them in that kind of like uh, deadly triad. You're kind of taking them out of it a little bit. The crazy part too, looking at this from a ZOE monitor quality review standpoint, I think this is probably our third or fourth similar case to this over the last couple of years. And to see the end title, 90, 85, 95, see the medic take the patient off the ventilator, bear hug them, and see them put them back on the ventilator and see 60. It's pretty, it's like you just squeezed out 30, you know, 30 millimeters of, of uh, entitled CO2. So not only do you improve preload, you decrease acidosis. So yeah, you're hitting, you're hitting two of the sides there. One, one piece that I want to add in just from an asthma critically ill peri-arrest standpoint is the best part about this case in my eyes, looking at it from a 36,000 foot view sort of standpoint, is that while yes, the patient got intubated for alteration and airway protection purposes, the intubation honestly was a bit of a side note, is that we concentrated on relieving the obstruction, augmenting preload, improving acidosis, decreasing inflammation, None of those things do an endotracheal tube solve. And when you run into a patient like this and you say, oh my gosh, we need to intubate them, and you intubate them first, this patient rearrests. I would say almost every time. If you walk in and you say, okay, we need to assess the ABCs, we need to address the underlying physiology, and intubate depending on mental status and respiratory fatigue assessment following the initial five to ten minutes those initial five to ten minutes that you spent with inline nebs with a bvm with push dose with fluids steroids probably not probably 20 30 minutes later but i am epi for sure for sure and, and magnesium those things bought us the time to allow the intubation to at least be successful ketamine sedation on top and that's really the asthma obstructive lung disease, full meal deal. Now, if it's a COPD patient, we're gonna do the exact same thing minus the epinephrine, but it's really, 
important to step back because we get so hyper-focused on the intubation attempt itself when in reality the preparatory phase and the packaging phase are markedly in my mind more important in this patient because if you don't mind your ventilator which is a procedure in and of itself you can absolutely induce harm with breath stacking with barrel trauma with you know atrogenic pneumothoraces and unrecognized pneumothoraces and unrecognized breast stacking so i'll just say that was to me the most impressive part Thank of the you. case yeah i mean we're, we're kind of attacking all the different aspects of asthma i mean you have the inflammation you have the bronchoconstriction um, you have the mucus plugging so we want to hydrate reduce inflammation relax those muscles and those are all going to help improve the patient like you said a tube isn't going to that's more so um, a last resort and something that we don't want to do for pediatrics very often which is intubate them um, we want to we want to treat the underlying cause and and if it ultimately leads to the need to innovate well then that's just something that we'll have to do um, when the time comes and when the time comes hopefully within MCHD within your emergency department care and with mine is hopefully when the patient is stable enough to undergo said intubation because if they are too unstable to be intubated and they arrest and you put the tube beautifully through the cords I would argue that you've done a pretty severe disservice to that patient you've not helped them very much if you resuscitate them you bag them you utilize your basic airway maneuvers while your initial treatments are taking effect and that IM epi is going to take effect quickly those inline nebs are going to take effect fairly quickly that the, the positioning the fluids the push dose presser those things are are you know seconds to minutes so it doesn't take you know it's not a, it's not a uh, solumedrol dose or a dexamethasone dose that takes you know minutes to hours these things especially when combined together really just buy us time and stability to allow that intubation portion to be a part of the treatment plan if you're talking to a new medic you know new medic first day on the job just graduated from paramedic school. What about the history is the most concerning piece to you? I kind of wanted to go back to this one too. And I just wanted to emphasize the importance for all the listeners out there, emergency nurses, emergency medicine residents, emergency docs, paramedics. When you hear a parent tell you that the patient has a history of intubation for asthma, I mean. Big, big red lights should <laughs> ding, 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 blinding, should be going off. Blinding red lights and blinding alarms. That should be on the list of scariest. And mind you, um, sometimes that's not information that is um, willingly given. You have to ask. So any kind of uh, respiratory patient that you have, whether they're stable now, um, ask if they've ever been intubated before. I think that's uh, an important question to ask, uh, especially a, an unstable pediatric patient that you come into contact with. You need to know. Sometimes parents don't know what intubated means. Uh, sometimes they think BiPAP is intubation. Sometimes they think a nebulizer mask is intubation so i'm really pretty clear has your child ever had to been put in a coma with a breathing tube down their throat uh, because some parents will know the, the the this family did but not everyone will i've had some patients and families tell me they've been intubated before and then when i come back into the net machines going yeah the last time we got intubated like this was a couple of months ago when i was like oh <laughs> they meant a net machine or yeah i had to have that mask put on my face with the velcro straps well, that's pretty sick, but that's not intubation sick. So I think it's important to make sure that we talk about the ventilator and induced coma and an actual, an actual uh, endotracheal tube or a breathing tube um, so that we're on their level. Great review, guys. That brings us to kind of the wrap-up. 
Uh, and we've kind of covered all the key points here, but Lily, just kind of go back through them and summarize for the, the medics and the providers listening, what are the key points that you learned from this case that you want other people to take forward in the management of these sick, sick kids with asthma? Uh, well, when it comes to asthmatic patients, it's not just an inflammatory process. It's important to know that it's an obstructive process that could uh, reduce preload, which could potentially lead to a patient arresting. So it's really important to, to get that preload on. But more importantly, the more definitive treatments for asthmatics will be that, um, especially severe asthmatics like this, is that early IM epi and then the inhaled bronco, bronchodilator. That's wrapped oh. up. Oh, okay. Yeah, so managing <laughs> these patients, right? Early, early IM epinephrine. Early bronchodilators, we've had many other patients in this service that were peri-arrest, super-duper sick, and some that never had to be intubated because they were taken care of so well on the front end to reverse their, their abnormal physiology that they recovered and never need to be intubated. So early IM epinephrine, early bronchodilators, whether that's through the mask or through a, a, a tracheal tube circuit or through the, the non-invasive circuit, plus minus steroids, magnesium, to work on the uh, uh, steroids for the inflammatory, uh, the hyper-inflammatory uh, state, and the magnesium for the, the bronchospasm that we're seeing. So aggressive, aggressive resuscitation before we do any other invasive procedures. Super, super big take-home point for yeah, me. Yeah, I guess the last piece I would add from a hypercarbia standpoint and potentially staving off intubation in these patients. You know, CPAP, BiPAP, it's definitely an option. It does come with the side effect of non-invasive positive pressure, which is going to induce all of the badness that we've already discussed. But if the patient is protecting their own airway, maybe awake, maybe moderately awake, I, I really believe that the ultramental status contraindication for BiPAP and CPAP is relative depending on if you think you have a bridgeable diagnosis like obstructive lung disease where potentially bronchodilators, epinephrine, ketamine, magnesium, steroids, all those things have time to kick in and maybe you can stave off the ventilator. I would urge you to consider that if you're a stickler for ultra mental status being a contraindication for non-invasive positive pressure. That's, that's your own personal decision if that's your you know, your medical director's decision, I, I, I'm not here to pick a fight there. I think there's a gray zone there to, uh, to decide where you land. Me personally, you know, if the patient's not actively spewing vomit and they're not markedly, markedly uh, unstable or altered, I don't think it's at all unreasonable in a super sick asthma patient to give a trial of CPAP or BiPAP. This patient was cross the line. Sounds Could, like. Couldn't agree more. I go back to our COVID airway management algorithm, which I absolutely love, right? And remember AAA, right? Apnea, severe agitation, you know, where they're just so agitated they're ripping the mask off, right? Those are the patients that are, you know, so altered, super agitated, ripping the mask off, or they're apneic. Those are the ones, you know, you just need to start BBM, OPMP airway, and get them resuscitated for DSI. Not going to be able to, to stave that off. Yeah, the big difference, I would say, in COVID-19 pneumonia versus asthma is asthma is a potentially quickly reversible, at least more quickly than a pneumonia situation. When you're looking at a COVID-19 you know, bilateral viral pneumonia, that patient's not going to lower their CO2 over the next four to six hours and turn it around. That patient's looking at a, a severe, severe course. So when that patient gets altered, 
that's a little bit of a different story. It's not getting better anytime soon. If the patient's an asthmatic and their end title's 55 and they're working really hard and they're confused but arousable, maybe a little sleepy, oftentimes I'll give those folks a 30, 60, 90 minute trial to, and just watch their end title and watch their mental status. And if they start to improve, continue to ride that out without jumping straight to- I agree, I think we're saying the same thing. I just didn't yep. say it as eloquently as Dr. P did, but I couldn't agree more. I mean, these patients that I was talking about earlier, we've had a couple of adult patients that were literally put on non-invasive as they were getting through the clinical bundle for severe asthma. And by the time they got ready to intubate them, they didn't need intubated. And in fact, in a couple of them, by the time they got to the receiving hospital, they were just on nasal prongs and able to speak to the crew. I mean, it, it can be a pretty amazing turnaround if you get on them quickly. We've also had some that were so far gone or if any big treatment delays, these patients are at high, high risk to arrest. Yeah, please don't take this as me throwing stones. This patient had an end title of 90 and was peri-arrest. Yeah, yeah. you, you are well past we're gonna, bypass. And, and had already cardiac arrested. So we're going to go ahead and give you that one. It's necessary to do a sedation intubation. Little. Totally, totally fair. And we love these case of the quarter podcasts, the case of the quarter presentations with our mandatory CE because it really lets the listeners – MCHD and now transferred over to the podcast lets our listeners out there that are not MCHD get to hear from our medics and also you know lets y'all share the pathology that we see this is who I sit over here and listen to you describe the patient and I get a little little uh, sweaty under the collar this is not one that any of us love to take care of but if when and if these come for you and I would say they will if you do this job long enough you have to approach it from an organized fashion you nailed uh, you know, hand-heavy, organized dosing, organized weight-based dosing, appropriate, then, you know, prepping on the way to the scene, dry run, you know, what are we, what are we looking for, where are the complications going to be, what are your roles, what are my roles, how are we going to approach it from the start and being ready for it, and then checking boxes, being organized as you run through your treatment and your assessment algorithm. Again, a great yeah. job. So Excellent case, Lily. Thanks for coming on today. I'd like to thank everybody out there for listening. As always, if you have questions or concerns, please email us at podcast at mchd-px.org. Please leave us a review or a like wherever you listen. If you have ideas for future casts, please send them our way. And thanks for listening again, and have a great day. This podcast was brought to you by the Montgomery County Hospital District, Texas. Production and editing by Andrew Adams. Questions or comments, which are always welcome, can be sent to podcast at mchd-tx.org. Make sure to subscribe above to keep updated to all our future casts. Music, copyright, Kevin McLeod, and Competech.com. Licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0.